I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club, episode 88, coming to you from a very cold night in Sydney. Yeah, cold night. Cold night, cold Sunday evening. Especially cold in this apartment because the, the air conditioning blew out last week. Yeah. Um, so it's, there's, there's no heating. So it's, no, we're both kind it's of, cold comfort. It's cold comfort. <laughs> it's a novel by Stella Gibbons. We're both kind of rugged up here. Yeah. Um, we're warding off the Sunday scaries. That's right. By talking television. It feels different doing it on the weekend, doesn't it? Mm, anyway, mm. Um, let's go on to the first show this week. Yeah. Uh, this is The Crowded Room. So... The Crowded Room is created by the screenwriter or the showrunner Akiva Goldsman, yeah. who I'd never heard of before, but actually like wrote quite a lot of iconic 90s films. Yeah. So did you look into this? So, I, I've, I've certainly heard of Akiva Goldsmith. I know he's directed a few movies as well. Yeah. Um, so in terms of what he's written, he wrote The Client, Batman Forever, yeah. uh, A Time to Kill, Batman and Robin, Lost in Space, Practical Magic, A Beautiful Mind. So it's like quite a lot of kind it's of pretty cl- diverse, classic diverse films in there. Of, not not you know stuck you know sticking to one particular genre. Exactly, He's and a, yeah, jack of all trades when it comes to the screenwriting. Yeah, and ma- industry. master of some, <laughs> jack of all trades <laughs> well, and master of some. Famous for writing the screenplay to A Beautiful Mind. Yeah, that's obviously which a, won a the Oscar. Yeah, yeah. Um, some of his directorial, um, you know, um, you know. Ed, uh, Activities not been quite as acclaimed. Yeah, the only ones, the only films he's directed are Winter's Tale, which I actually didn't see that. Mm, that and, got um, very bad reviews. Yeah, I remember that. A very high concept. And one called Stephanie, a horror film, which I haven't seen either. Mm. Um, but anyway, so the show is he's the show run, uh, showrunner for the Crowded Room, mm. and maybe it's kind of good just to talk through before talking about the background to, to talk through kind of what happens in the pilot because yeah. the premise emerges quite gradually. It does. It does. Um, I, I had no idea what this no, was I had about no context. going into it. No. So I hadn't watched any trailers. I hadn't heard no. much about this series at all. So it does emerge gradually. So, mm. yeah, perhaps step us through. So it starts with um, the main character. What's the main character's name? I forgot. So the main character Tom Holland. I think it, it, here. I think of him as being Tom Holland. Yes. So Danny Sullivan. Danny Sullivan. So it starts with the main character, um, Tom Holland, performing some kind of heist or burglary or crime mm. and being apprehended by police. Mm. Um, and the first, I guess, twist of the pilot is that you realise, I guess a couple of minutes in, that this is set in the late 1970s in New York City. Yeah. And there's... I'm not sure why that should feel... Incong- I'm not sure why that should feel incongruous. Like, maybe it's because the Apple TV aesthetic is so crystalline... Yes. ...that it's, it doesn't have the kind of grungy overlay that you'd expect from a period piece. No. So... Yeah, that, that in itself is surprising. Um, he's then taken into a questioning room where a police officer played by Amanda Seyfried kind of interrogates him about the crime. Mm. And that kind of then turns into, I guess, a framing device for a series of flashbacks that deal with his, at so far, with his adolescence and with some of the challenges he had around relationships, um, you know, social situations, drugs, and only kind of gradually towards the end do you start to glimpse what the premise of this actually is yeah. which is that um the tom holland character has dissociative personality disorder mm. so the entire series is kind of a an adaptation of the iconic kind of book the minds of billy milligan by daniel keys mm. which is a piece of true being crime a, being a huge true crime fan were you familiar with this case i'd heard the name billy milligan okay. i'd never read the book and the book apparently is a kind of novelized true crime yeah. um, work so it's kind of it's it's written like a novel, even though it deals with real life occurrences, and the but the backstory for Billy Milligan is that um, 
in the late 1970s, he assaulted three women and committed a number of, you know, burglaries and kind of more petty crimes. And he was the first person to be let off um, because of dissociative personality disorder. So, you know, let off in the loose sense. I'm pretty sure he was um, incarcerated in a psychiatric institute. But in terms of criminal culpability, um, I think, a, you know, there were three main personae that he had, three main identities. And I think the psychiatrist recorded as many as 15 or 16 and it was one of those who had committed the crime mm. um, rather than his main self. Mm. So, so his head is a crowded room. His head is a crowded room. Bingo. Bingo. Um, so that's kind of the premise. But you only start to glimpse that gradually towards the end of this pilot. The pilot mm. only takes place um, with one of, I guess, presumably the Billy Milligan or um, Danny Sullivan's kind of characters. Anchor, anchor self. Yes. Um, hopefully, the others are more interesting than the anchor <laughs> self. Um, it's but pretty. It's pretty. Un- the the broad parameters of this this, this offending is pretty. It's pretty vague, isn't it? Mm. It's unclear the context of this crime, um, his relationships with the other characters. And, and maybe look, maybe I shouldn't be snide about. It. Like it may well be that what we're seeing in this first pilot is just is, is not the dominant. Like is not the main personality. It's one of the mm. kind of side personalities, and that the kind of the core personality will come through. But. Yeah, so it's, it basically seems like it's a series about, I guess, something along the lines of Sybil. Like, it's a series about dissociative personality disorder. Yeah. But it starts with just one personality, and the rest of it is quite emergent. So mm. well, what did you think of it? Yeah, well, I think the, the setup is is very ambiguous in the mm. way that they, they let you into this character mm. and his world um, is dissociative. Mm. Like, you are... You know, thrust into this world mm. in media res, and you don't have much context for the, you know, for the, the, the happenings that that transpire. So, it sort of enacts his own disassociation mm. um, narratively, mm. um, as well as thematically. So that does make it a rather disorienting pilot, mm. um, and because the character is is somewhat unplaceable, there is a kind of aporia the centre of this pilot as well mm. um, with this character. So You're right. I mean, there is... The character feels quite underdeveloped, doesn't he? Mm. In a way that makes sense when you understand that dissociative context. Yeah. Mm. And the character of Danny Sullivan, I think, is only loosely based on Billy Milligan. Mm. And apparently Akiva Goldsmith brought in a lot of his own autobiographical... Oh, really? Um, yeah, background to this mm. as well, to flesh out the character. Mm. So I'd be very intrigued reading the source novel for this. I, yeah, when I read it, was a it was a novelized, not novelized nonfiction. Mm. I was thinking, well, oh, that's quite an unusual genre, mm. especially in the in the true crime mm. um, subgenre. Have you met, read many no, novelized nonfiction? What's well, kind of given you? You're, you're so in deep the rabbit in this hole. rabbit hole. Well, it's funny. Like I sense that there's a real crossover. Like I guess in the '60s and '70s and '80s. Um, between a certain kind of true crime potboiler and a certain kind of paperback potboiler. Mm. So I sense there's a different novel economy back then, whereas, you know, we live in a time now where novels are generally pretty expensive if you buy them firsthand. Um, and for the most part, the kind of novels that are sold in bookstores are either, even if they're not prestige novels, they're packaged that way, mm. right? Like there's, there's, in terms of, Production. The thing, I sense the production design of novels is a whole lot higher than it used to be. Yeah. And my sense is that maybe peaking in the 70s, there's this completely different circulation of paperbacks that you buy, say, at newsstands mm. or you buy in more transitory public spaces. Mm. It's the equivalent and, of the airport novel. Yeah, exactly. And there's just, 
there's more of a sense of that being a form of mass entertainment and there's a particular kind of novel pop boiler novel that occupies that space which kind of i think converges with true crime in a fairly natural way would you describe in cold blood as a novelized non-fiction i think i think that definitely is but i think what we're talking about is probably a bit later than that and a bit less highbrow so something like i think something like the stranger beside me is mm. novelized non-fiction right yeah. like it's telling it it's telling a true story but it's written like a novel in the style of a, in the style a, of a page novel. turnout yeah like a first yeah. person novel so i sense that there's just it's like there's a different kind of and i mean this in a good way the different kind of middle brow reading public and a different kind of middle brow reading ecology mm. um Maybe just partly because of price points as well. So that sense mm. of buying cheap paperbacks is just in collecting cheap. Mm. Even, you know, the, like I think Penguin Classics is probably interesting in that respect. Like we think if you buy a Penguin Classics book now, it's twenty twenty five dollars. It's a prestige item. You put it on your shelf. Mm. But actually, the whole point of Penguin Classics was to be collectible. Yeah. Sorry, to be affordable and you know, collectible, but affordable. So I just remember my parents' book collection. All these an older breed of paperbacks lining the shelves of things that were, they ranged from, you know, non-fiction to literary fiction to popular fiction to genre fiction. And in, in some cases, a couple of true crime books that they had, but they're all bound by this different kind of, yeah, like middle brow paperback, affordable reading ecology. So I sense mm. it comes out of that mm. a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so Apple TV Plus is certainly the, the modern equivalent of the prestige, mm. prestige novelization. So they're tackling some more pulpy, pulpy subject matter here but hiring Akiva Goldsmith obviously lends itself mm. um, a big big name in in Hollywood lends itself some prestige so the translation of this from a slightly pulpy potboiler mm. novelized non-fiction to this high high-end high production values um, big a-list cast mm. has something been lost I, in this I, I, I completely agree so I think maybe when early on I was trying to capture the shock of it being set in the 1970s mm. and yeah that's exactly what it is like it feels like the story belongs in a particular kind of pulpy, sensationalised, you know, 70s media landscape. I mean, imagine, you know, imagine the public outcry that must have greeted this trial, that a guy mm. gets off assaulting three women because of dissociative personality disorder. I mean, I, that, I don't think that would ever happen today. Mm. But it, it belongs to a particular time and place, that that event. So, yeah, there is something, I think, that shears the sensationalism, just shears the pulpiness off it right away. And... Yeah, I think that speaks to what I found somewhat unsatisfying about this series. I mean, firstly, it is very anodyne mm. in terms of its style for something it is so lurid. Mm. But also, I felt like a real hallmark of, I guess, you know, this kind of new wave of quality television is, is striving for a seriousness that isn't always justified mm. or going for seriousness as a matter of course. So here i thought that this pilot did that quite a lot in that it was largely comprised of flashbacks that i mean i thought the flashbacks were quite boring mm. and quite banal but also they, there was too much gravitas attached to them for them to feel like a slice of life either mm. so you had this weird kind of fusion of gravitas and normality that i actually found quite grating to watch mm. and i think at the heart of that to be honest is tom holland's performance so mm. I find him... I mean, this to me feels a bit like Tom Holland's bid for a post-superhero acting career, right? So yeah. he's a kind of... To me, he's part of a generation of actors that very much came of age with, let's be honest, a certain kind of B-grade superhero film. Mm. And, you know, films which... There's something about that school of film that doesn't necessarily require a lot of charisma on the part of its actors. Mm. And, 
you know, those films, the superhero films I'm talking about are often, they often subsist on a kind of perky humorlessness mm. that is quite easy for the actors just to adopt in turn. And, you know, it's not just that I think it doesn't necessarily make great actors, it often really neuters actors who are already great. Mm. So, yeah, that that kind of perkiness, but without that, that's deeply humorless. I felt, I felt that was present in this to some extent, mm. in that it is perky and that there's a lot of movement from moment to moment, but there's such a self-seriousness to it. Mm. And, you know, you're dealing with something like a dissociative personality disorder, right? Whatever the consequences of it are, it's an inherently absurd proposition. Yeah. Like, it's such an absurd idea. There's got to be some element of, if not outright comedy, like some element of humour yeah. to leave in it. So I just, I felt, and I, I also feel that, like, Tom Holland as an actor traffics in a particular kind of just like one note angst mm. like the set of his mouth in particular yeah that's just really really tedious mm. and it's sort of it feels like a kind of jittery anxious sweaty mm. sweat soaked performance like a really aping sort of an, a 70s al pacino yeah type. but but like inflected through spider-man yeah so it's like yeah. It's, i mean i just find him a bit of a wet blanket to be honest yeah. and it it feels like you know, this is obviously his bid to do something serious. Not that superhero films can't be serious. This is obviously his bid to do something post-superhero. Mm. I think he was heavily involved in the production of it. Like, I think he... I remember reading somewhere that he was one of the people who spearheaded it as a project in mm. the first place. I'm not sure if that is exactly right, what I'm recounting, but he was involved behind the scenes mm. in a big way. Mm. His um, involvement, no doubt, would have got this yeah, greenlit of course. very, very quickly. But actually, I kind of feel like this is... I mean, firstly... It feels, in many ways, it feels like this is following the beats of a superhero script, right? So you have the kind of dweeby kid who's about to undergo some kind of transfiguration, except in this case, the transfiguration is going to be into multiple personalities yeah. <laughs> rather than a superhero. Like you think about the dissociative personality disorder narrative, like it's not that different to a superhero mm. or mm. an anti-hero. You transform into someone else. Yeah. So it just, it feels like... Or a supervillain. Or a supervillain, exactly. So for all that this at one level is ostensibly a step away from the superhero genre. The whole pilot just feels like the first act of Spider-Man. Yeah. But like in a very muted... Freighted with enormous yeah. significance. Yeah, <laughs> and also a kind of a promise that this character is going to become less disinteresting. Yes. Except that the great Spider-Man actors like Tobey Maguire, um, I think even Andrew Andrew Garfield is better than Tom Holland. Like I think Tom Holland is the most... Am I, am I recalling that correct? The Tom yeah. Holland... Yeah, Andrew Garfield is better than Tom Holland. Like I feel like Tom Holland is, is the least charismatic. And look, I kind of feel like when he hasn't got the Spider-Man mask on, he's nothing. Like I feel like there's nothing. Like So I don't know. I found this... I mean, there's even one point right where he's out with his friends and he buys a comic book. Yeah. You know, like it's a constant... Illusions. So just, it just felt to me like the very definition of an actor who, without all the the ready-made, custom-built, prefabricated hubris of the superhero film and trajectory, is like completely at sea, like playing a character like this. Yeah. And like I said, the, the, there's this kind of, there's this overwhelming sense of gravitas laid over every scene as if there's going to be some superhero transformation. Yeah. But given that it's going to be in the other direction towards a series of criminal personalities, I mean, I can also see this just becoming just like really actorly, like in the most irritating way, like just almost like a resume for Tom Holland. I feel like I'm having a... a (laughs) Uh, But like whatever, like I just, I find this style of, I feel this kind of superhero charisma so tedious. Mm, He's one of the few few stars under 30 that 
Hollywood has minted in the last 20 years. Yeah, I just feel it's bland. <laughs> I feel it's bland, Phil. I'm sorry, I think he's really bland. Yeah, um, pressing the ejector seat. But you can see this just becoming also, like this is my fear, that just become like basically a resume for the next part of his career. Here's <laughs> sure. how he does criminal. Here's how he does seedy. Here's how he does apparently one of the... It's the equivalent of a headshot. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I know you said that there was this interesting dissociative vibe to it, which... Yeah, I agree. The disorientation is interesting. I also feel like this could easily become a bait and switch. Like this just yeah. could become a show that, that that needs that could conceivably end after two episodes. We just keep on going on and on. Yeah. Also, final thing. I think it's getting to a bit of a rant. <laughs> um, you know, compared to Tom Holland, I mean, Amanda Seyfried just has natural charisma, right? She's, great. She's, I mean, and she also cut her teeth, you know, as a younger star. So she was in Big Love. You know, she she came up through the ranks as a young actor, and. You know, she just immediately has screen presence. Yeah. She immediately has charisma. And so I think the contrast between him and her is very stark. Mm. And at first, I, I was really into the interrogation scenes with her. But um, like I said, it's, it's just a presence that certain actors have. But unfortunately, I feel like these interviews are just going to become mere exposition. Yes. They're just going to become just the most functional kind of framing device yes. for these flashbacks. Of, yeah. And uh, leaning so heavily into flashback. As a narrative device, he's quite lazy, I think. And I, there's some there's a great contrast to our archive corner choice mm. um, tonight between you know the, the scenes, the interrogation scenes here, mm. and the interrogation scenes in Cracker. Mm. And, and you notice the difference in in high quality writing, no recourse to flashbacks yep. as a conceit, and the difference in in intention, in investment on the part of the audience is is. Is pretty significant. Absolutely, and the way you know we'll get to, it, but the way in Cracker, for example, that the the interrogator becomes a part of the drama himself, mm. whereas here, I mean, here Amanda Seyfried, for all her charisma, just feels like she's there for an expository function. Yeah, like she's, she's just there to disseminate information. And I agree. Like at first, I when it cut to flashback, I was like, Ugh. but. You know, I thought it maybe at least it'd be an impressionistic flashback or an oblique flashback, or sometimes like Saint Orange's The New Black, a genuinely interesting flashback yeah. about the characters' lives. But the flashback is just is so tedious <laughs> and so rote and so I don't know, so banal. But like I said, you can't just enjoy it as a kind of naturalistic study of growing up because it's overlaid with just this looming sense of significance um i mean my grandfather used to say like yeah we had this joke he'd be like i'm i'm become overcome by the exuberance of my own bombacity i'd be like <laughs> what do you mean by that part he's like i don't know i feel like this show was kind of like that um yeah so it just it just felt to me like a muted echo of a superhero and i just i don't i don't think he's charismatic mm, like i don't mm. it's interesting because you know you think about andrew garfield right who he played spider-man 2 he, well. yeah. he did i mean we watched him in that archive show last week um, or the, yes. yeah, and he was just he's extraordinary. Like yeah. he just has absolute charisma. Whereas here, it just it felt to me like that prefab Marvel hubris <laughs> transplanted onto a psychodrama in yeah. a way that just it's quite unusual, for, I think, for a seventy set uh, drama to have so little atmosphere. I agree. Yeah. Well, it, but yes, but it also reminds me of the way in which period detail is dealt with, especially in the MCU. Like. Mm. Yeah, the MCU has kind of cannibalized a whole lot of different genres, including the period piece. Yeah. And its period pieces are, are just completely leached of anything resembling texture. Mm. I mean, it's weird. Like, I feel, I feel like I could be turning around the MCU, but I feel like the MCU is, is kind of terrified of anything resembling real style mm. or real stylistic bravura because that's risky at, yes. a, market, at a market level, um, even though 
the blander their films become, the less people they attract. Yes. And even though films like Oppenheimer and Barbie, which are both stylistically flamboyant, have you know made huge box office returns, there's just this anxiety about style, which I think lends itself to a particularly, I think this is the word you often use, which are like airless yeah. historical pastiche. So I agree, this this doesn't in any way feel like it's set in the <laughs> 70s. No, it's quite a shock when you actually yeah. discover it is, yeah. um, because it certainly doesn't capture the, the textures no. of the 70s. No, um, it feels set in a kind of contemporary fantasy of the 70s, yeah. um, a Marvel fantasy of the 70s. Mm. So look, this was, this was one of those shows that I, I found, I think I actually found quite irritating. Mm. Like I... Sometimes you see a show, it's a swing and a miss. And it's like you had to go, you know, this is not for me, but I respect it. Whereas this, I felt like this was just such a, it was like an exercise in Marvel superhero terrorism under a different name with mm. everything about that that I find inimical. Just, lest I sound like a hater, there aren't <laughs> many films I dislike. And there mm. aren't many, like when it comes to, I watch pretty much anything. Mm. And certainly anything that's lowbrow or, you know, like there's a lot of, you know, mm. I saw the Happy Time Murders at the cinema. <laughs> the only person in that cinema. But just this particular style of, you know, yeah, Marvel terrorism, I'm, I'm not into it, especially when it's posing as a psychodrama, which I, which I love. So, look, I, I've, I've realised I've talked myself into reminding me how much I dislike this. Yeah, I've, I thought oh, it was the only impression that you were lukewarm about this, but... No. Um, I get the sense that this is this has become a real Jeremiah no, against the crowded room. It's funny, before um, we did the podcast, I had a little bit of a snooze. I was reading, I had a bit of a snooze, so I was a bit drowsy when I started the podcast, but I've, I've woken You're right up. up. I've woken right up, like talking about the crowded room. Maybe because it's reminded me how soporific the show was. Yeah, yeah, so true. So I just... Um, true. I think, I think it's crowded not... crowded soapbox. I think it's not necessarily the worst show this week, but it's the one that I found the least likable. Fair enough. Yeah, I'm a... How long we how long you got to treat the whole podcast about the crowded room? How long you got? You whipped yourself up into a yeah. frenzy. Yeah. Into a frenzy. Yeah, yeah. Well then the targets, there's there's no sacred cows here. No. Tom Holland, the MC here. Yeah, no. I'm I am relieved though that you didn't love it because I thought just in, in the last five minutes of talking about it, I thought this might be another Fleischman situation. But this time around I'm confident that yeah, even no. if you love it, I I I'm, thought this was pretty weak, pretty okay, flaccid, okay. and I was I was pretty soporific all the way through this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's for a psychodrama, it's boring. It is. Yep. It, it really is. Hard out. Okay, um, on to a more positive television experience, <laughs> maybe. All right, our next series is Who is Aaron Carter? So this new limited series is screening on Netflix. It stars Evan Ahmad, who plays the titular Aaron, and it's set in sunny Bar- Barcelona, or Barcelona, mm. as you mastered so, so ably when we were there. Should we, should we fill in ever on that story <laughs> when we went to Europe with our friend Joe at the end of what 2004 2003 2004 we were all assigned a different language to learn let's be honest you'd done French for six years at high school so you you were pretty well I had some pretty yeah, I had Joe pretty, had pretty solid yeah competence Joe, Joe had Italian Joe's Italian American so he had Italian and I got Spanish so I was like the only person who had no experience of my language and I think I did a pretty good job so each of us was assigned to, to, to learn a language, to master that I mean, language. You'd been doing French for six years. To be yeah. our translator. Yep. And uh, Billy not only didn't uh, do any F, didn't do any work. I, 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 he I didn't was... even know how to count to ten in Spanish. I, I, so I remember was, ordering <laughs> a fair few. He was speaking some sort of weird combination of French and Italian. You know, it's funny uh, actually. <laughs> like um, 
we went to a churros and ended place. up ordering a, ordering a churros with salt instead of sugar. Well, yeah, like we ordered a churros so one I day. That, I attribute that to your yeah, that your probably limited was, mastery of that probably of was that probably was a Spanish <laughs> a mistranslation thing. Did this bring back bring back uh, memories of of Barcelona? Billy? So no, it did not bring back memories. I had no sense this was set in Barcelona. I thought it was like set on the Spanish Riviera or somewhere, like mm. with the Costa del Sol. Is it actually mm. set in Barcelona? Well, that's that's where the, it allegedly is set. Oh. Although we don't have many scenes of the touristy Barcelona. It feels the, like it's set in the a small Bari Gothic. Yeah, exactly. The Placa the Placa de Catalunya. Placa de Catalunya. See, I yeah, can remember yeah. that. Um, <laughs> so, but, so uh, our series, our series, yeah, uh, it, uh, it looks like it's set in like the Spanish Riviera. Yeah, is where it looks. That's yeah, the style of it. Yeah. yeah. So, a little bit of background about this plot. Um, our our titular character, Erin Carter, is a uh, has, has some problems in her personal life, which are not fully disclosed in her opening. So. As a, as a little preamble to this, we see Erin and her daughter in some sort of liminal space on the, the English coast looking mm. to escape mm. Britain. We're not told why, and we're not told why she needs to go outside of the normal mm. uh, normal customs. So she she charters a fishing boat and escapes. We next could this, be, could this be another Brexit narrative, Andrew? Well, possibly. After your Brexit, your Brexit hot take on the Winter King. Possibly. Have I you think... watched any more of the Winter King to explore that Brexit, that Brexit allegory? Well, I'm very interested mm. in televisual representations of Brexit by displacement yeah. of Brexit. Have you watched any more of the Winter King, just out of interest, to explore uh, that? Well, not yet. Not, not yet. Not yet. Okay, not yet. Yeah, okay. Not yet. Not yet. Mm-hmm. Thesis in in progress. Mm-hmm. So we see within flash forward. I think it's five to ten years, and Erin is now ensconced in her new life in Barcelona as a substitute teacher at uh, a ritzy, looks like middle school mm-hmm. in this particular particular city. She's got a new um, a new boyfriend mm-hmm. who is a nurse, and her daughter seems to have, be having some adjustment issues in her new school, but otherwise she's living a bit of a, mm-hmm. a sunny idol of a of, of a life mm-hmm. in Barcelona in exile. That is until there is a dun, traumatic dun, dun. supermarket robbery in which one of the perpetrators recognises her. Mm. And in defending herself, she reveals some very specific skills. <laughs> <laughs> so so over time, we come to learn more about the secrets of Erin Carter, mm. although this question is unanswered in our pilot. Funny, I kept on hearing, you know that South Park episode, who is Eric Cartman's father? <laughs> every single time I look at the title, I was like, who is Eric Cartman's father? I kept, I kept on hearing that, this whole, every time the question was on the screen. Yes, yes. Um, so this show is created by Doc Martin, strike back writer Jack Lothian, um, and is, I think, has a lot of the hallmarks of a, ne- a Netflix television product. I think it's from the production team behind The Crown too, oh, by okay. the way. Just, okay, yeah. okay. So I guess let's talk about Let's talk about the Netflix house style yep. and how this is emblematic of that. Yep. We've got the, I guess, the, the, the transit or the, the continental narrative, you yep. know, the, the uh, cross-border nature of this, the, the hybridisation mm. of, of, our, of our cast, of our, of our of the concepts. Yeah, because it, I mean, yeah, I agree. A genre as well in yeah. terms of hybridity. So I think the Netflix style is often... It's often it's cross-border hybridity, mm. um, often bringing in some of the more melodramatic qualities of, say, the telenovela. Oh, so this feels like it feels like it's everything light, right? So yes. it's like telenovela light, spy thriller light, kind of action, action light, like it's just everything. And yeah, in fact, vigilante narrative, yeah, light. yeah, like film, <laughs> film soleil light, like yes. 
and the whole thing is kind of driven by light, right? So there's light is a motif throughout the whole thing. It's mm. so like a scene when she first realizes that her past is caught up to her when she goes home and sees someone's left all the lights in the house. Yes. Um, she let she she turned them off when she left. Someone's come on and turned them on. There's a critical, you know, moment with a neighbor in front of a light, like a light and ice sculpture. Um, her daughter has got an eye condition, which means she can't look at bright light. So mm. I'm just like, Ooh. remember that? Motif. Motif. So everything <laughs> is just, everything, this this warm light is mm. just front and centre. The point where... Mm. The, the supermarket war- lights as well. The supermarket yeah. lights. So it's like the point where the warm light is almost the point of it. Like it's just, you, mm. it just invites you to bask in this Mediterranean ambience. And there's a few little interesting <laughs> plot points along the way. Don't you think? Yeah. I think if we could describe the, boil down the Netflix aesthetic, it's... it's it's the television of globalization. Yeah, true, isn't it? It's the borders because of this, you know, you know, mm. um, you know, glomeration mm. streaming service, which is able to just voraciously take in genres and and shows across borders mm. and mix them together. Um, it, it is the equivalent of of these these international borders, um, yeah, being falling down. Mm. You know, the, the the barriers between different culture cultures all of a sudden have fallen mm. and there's a new space for intermingling mm. hybridization um cross-pollination one of, the, one of the strange consequences of that is that throughout the episode it ultimately feels as if english actors are dubbed and spanish actors are dubbed. Yes. like it's a truly bilingual yes if someone kind of cast if, right? some, if you didn't know anything about the background of this show you would say it could be a British show, it could be a Spanish show, mm. it could be a South American show mm. where none of the actual settings are are real. They're just sound stages in Latin America. I think hence the lack of tension away, right? Because the whole the whole point is, you know, oh, you know, she's come from England to Spain, she's put that barrier behind her. Will that barrier be traversed? But actually it's been traversed from the outset. Yes. The whole point of the show, like the very there premise no and aesthetic anymore. is that there's no barriers. So <laughs> you kind of feel like whatever happens, like if this connective tissue between England and Spain is restored, it's going to be relatively low stakes. Like yes. She'll get through it with a few karate chops. And like, <laughs> so like, it's like, it's like that. It's like, the, it's a whole story is about thresholds, but the aesthetic has dissolved them to begin with. So it's true. It's wonderfully low key true i mean it's pretty it's a pretty absurd seat mm. conceit in this day and age to mm. expect that you can lose your identity you can you can be completely anonymous by moving mm. you know two countries apart from mm. the one that you know you you're originated from it's so i think with all summarizing all that stuff like it's got pretty bad reviews i thought this was like really watchable <laughs> it's like it's like a beach read it was like, it was like it was like a literal beach read it's like the whole thing is just beach light yeah, it's like it's like the premise is like in a world that's globalized. Like the upside is that everywhere feels like the beach. <laughs> Do you think? I don't think it was amazing, but like yeah, it, was, yeah. it was it was watchable. Well, that's I, all it has to be, right? I think I think this might be <laughs> one of the first examples of a show that's so bad it's good. Yeah, right. So I, it's okay. incredibly melodramatic. Mm. Um, it's it's ridiculous. Mm. Um, the the plot twists are entirely. Uh, absurd mm. and like a telenovela yeah and Erin carter's real backstory is is utterly utterly ridiculous mm. um but it's dealt with like the stakes are so low mm. and the the kind of rapid 180 degree shifts from genres mm. is gives you whiplash so you see i'm not even sure i'd say it's so bad it's so good like i don't think it's even memorably I wouldn't bad say it's so good <laughs> let's, yeah let's okay let's backpedal a little bit but I, <laughs> so bad it's it's good it's watchable i mean i mean i think i think this is just it's it's fine 
<laughs> it's just fine. Like, like it's the, fine. Like Barcelona's weather. Yeah. It's it's fine. It's fine. It's it, like it does what I mean, you know <laughs> It's peppy. If you're going to a beach and you want a beach read, like it's like a beach watch. So I think it was like the kind of the antithesis in spirit of I'm back to the crowded <laughs> I'm back to the crowded room. I'm back on the crowded room. I thought the opposite in spirit of the crowded room that like I think both of them actually are kind of pitched at about the same level. Mm. But this doesn't pretend to be more than it is. And that makes it much more endearing, mm. I think. Mm. Well, this is also about disassociating yourself from your previous It identity. is. It's actually quite a similar story. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think there's there's some great pulpy moments in this. Yeah. Like when Erin uh, confronts another mother from her from her. That was uh, great, that scene. That scene was genuinely great. I mean, something I will say, there are moments like... And that was a good example of one, where... It's all set in these kind of villas on elevated, windy streets. Like, it does feel a little bit like a kind of a light Spanish noir or Spanish soleil. Like, I thought that scene, the scene with her and the wealthy neighbours, generally, too, the scenes, were really good. That was a great... Yeah, I thought that worked. Yeah, I think it was so bad it was good. I thought that scene was just quite <laughs> well done, generally. Like, I thought there were there were, there were other scenes that weren't. Yeah, but I thought, you'd have to say the last, the last ten minutes of this... This pilot are utterly ridiculous. The action stuff. Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, devolving into you know full-blooded action specific spy ops. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I just no, I agree. I mean, I, I found that Aaron's very particular set of skills. I found that stuff. She, I found that she stuff. exercises in the classroom. I found that. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, so it's an empty classroom. So it takes place at a. We should probably say the plot point is that at a, a recital that her daughter's in, she sees one of her old nemeses, yeah. and they kind of peel off into a classroom and you know martial arts and yeah. <laughs> I mean, I th- I thought that stuff was just a bit boring to be honest. But but the kind of the the yeah the beachy the beach vibes the kind of low key mystery the low key. I mean, mm. what you want is from a beach road, you want a mystery that kind of keeps you hooked. But it's not so hooky that you don't look up at the sand and the sky and the sea every now and then. This is like that, right? Like it's the like texture. It's like this is that built into a show. So you, you focus sometimes on the story and sometimes you're like, "That's pretty. That's a nice beach. That's a nice house. It's a nice street. Is a beautiful place. Yeah, beautiful yeah. town. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I wouldn't give to be there right now. Well, something we haven't mentioned. Remember in, when we were overseas with Joe that we this kind of terrible flu overtook. Well, you and Joe, I was my immune system was strong, but you were basically bedridden in Barcelona. I was, so I was, I it was, was. I experienced one day, and the rest was a was a haze. horrific, horrific haze. But that's so this, right. this, have you been there since then? I have not. This is this is almost like it's a lost object it for is, you. It is. That's who is Erin right. Carter? It's a lost object. Look, yeah. I, I thought this was what I watch. Would I go out my way to watch more of it? Probably not. Would I go out my way to not watch more of it? Probably not. If it's on, if someone else is watching it, I'll sit Perhaps down. Good show to put on while you're doing laundry. Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah doing why? some push-ups. Yeah, exactly. Just getting going, getting your morning routine going on, on the train, on a commute. It could be good. Getting some vitamin D through the television yeah, screen. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I feel like I've got a visual picture of getting on a train and just you, you had to spot it on people's portable devices just from the pallet. So. Um, watching other people watch watching it. Watching people watching it, exactly. Watching other people watching it. Yeah, yeah, just kind of basking in the sun a little bit. So, look, it was, it was, um, it was, it was fine. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think it, I think it, it does, it does cross a threshold, a ludicrous threshold that made it, you know, I, I did, I did guffaw a few times by the end. But so. even the karate and the martial arts is kind of relaxing. <laughs> you put on the gym, yeah. Yeah. I'm, Sounds like you're a, you're an in with it on background. Yeah, I'm just it's on the it's out there in the world, and I'm fine with that. <laughs> I'm I'm not in. All right, on to our next series for this week, and this is a documentary, mm. and you might describe this as a true crime documentary. Mm. 
but an increasingly prevalent genre, which is the the corporate malfeasance. The scammer industrial complex. Scammer industrial complex. Yep. Although this one is a bit more ambiguous mm-hmm. about whether the uh, the subject was a scammer or a victim. Remember we said, talking about it last time, that the whole scammer industrial complex movement seems to be about a growing um, scepticism in American culture about the figure of the entrepreneur, mm. like especially over the last 10 years. Like you compare some, something like the social network to something like the WeWork series, there's this sense that, that yeah, that rhetoric of entrepreneurship has has waned in terms of its hold on the public, maybe also to do with um, the Sackler family as well. Yeah. So, but, yeah, this this feels like it's... it's Continuous with that. The whole premise here, here is like, you know, innovator or, or entrepreneur or fraudster. Yes. That's a... Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So this, this one's about Carlos Ghosn, hmm. who was the former CEO of Nissan slash Renault. Mm. And um, it's 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 an first first things first. This is an extraordinary story, an extraordinary case, and a lot of this pilot ends up, um, you know, presenting the two the two sides, mm. hearing from both his supporters and his detractors, and also the people who are somewhere in the middle. Mm. So to try to actually get to the mystery about whether there where was serious malfeasance or whether he was, you know, the, the target of a of a of sort of you know strategic persecution. A coup mm. d'état, as they describe mm. it, is is very interesting, and I was, it, I was at least um, undecided at the end of this pilot, mm. although it left me wanting more. And the pilot, you probably say, in some ways, functions, it hints at that, but mm. it functions also just as a as a, as pre- a prelude, preparatory yeah. introduction to his character and business achievements. Yes. Right? So a bit a bit of background about Carlos Carlos Ghosn. So he was born in Brazil. Mm. Uh, but was raised in in Lebanon, and then born in the Amazon. I yes, think, yeah. I know, in the middle of the Amazon, and then raised in Lebanon through two Lebanese parents, and then um, went to high school in France, and and managed to secure um, uh, a, a place at a prestigious university, mm. and as a result of this, started to work his way through the ranks of the the um, the French managerial class. Mm. He eventually emerged as the as the successor to the um, the head of the Renault um, business, and he was sort of anointed as the as as the as the heir heir mm. apparent as a result of his successful management of of other uh, prominent companies. Mm. He was known as for his pretty dramatic cost cutting mm. uh, measures, as well as his. Um, Pretty pretty stable set of set of hands in that in that particular industry. Well, didn't didn't they say that like both Renault and Nissan were on the verge of total collapse when he overtook them and he just completely transformed the companies yes. into? I mean, they, they wouldn't exist today without him. No, so his his form. status as an outsider who wasn't beholden to the cultural mores of, mm. of France or or Japan mm. were, were an asset mm. because it seems like they're both countries where. A bit of a sclerotic corporate mm. sector, nice, um, and a lack of innovative thinking, lack, lack of risk taking, and, and, la- and a, a limited appetite for actually restructuring, which is something that he brought in. So it seemed like his genius was pretty banal from a, a Western type of restructuring perspective. Well, I kind of have to say this to me was well, I'll let you finish, but I, I that was one of the things I found quite underwhelming about him and the documentary but yeah, keep, keep, yeah. Well, or should may I say it now his, like I his mean, genius felt like it was a bit underwhelming it was more a, a product of bringing in those more brutal um, yeah I mean bottom is, line managerial is, strategies from the US I guess this is something that I found kind of um, 
disengaging about the documentary. I mean, firstly, outside of this possible fraud, this possible scam, I didn't think he was a particularly interesting figure at all. I mean, he just seemed to me his his strategy, his vision was pretty, you know, pretty straightforward. Right? It's like just cut thousands of jobs. Yeah, you know, he just cut or thousands of the jobs. companies to profitability and then. But, then grow from there. But my, yeah, but the way he did it was just by cutting thousands of jobs. Yeah. So I didn't think there was any great vision there. There was just a kind of brutalism. And I guess that also made me feel like I felt that the question of whether or not he committed corporate malfeasance, to me, I already thought he was a bad guy. You know, right. this, is, this is a guy getting $25 million a year while he's laying off industrial workers right, left, left, right and centre. I mean, there's a scene where he has a some major this the i think that Renault has some major party for him at versailles or something well he oh, he, he, organizes he organizes a party yeah, at versailles to celebrate the the fusion of the two when yeah. it's really uh, i think corresponding to his 50th birthday yeah but i mean so I, I, I didn't i didn't think that was any less outrageous than what he was in spirit than what he was accused of doing so i guess i just found this i found it disengaging at that level and that i thought that you know so much so much of the narrative trajectory here i guess was like did he remain a visionary businessman or did he you know, violate, you know, compromise his vision by committing fraud. And I was like, well, as far as I could see, the visionary quality simply consisted in just laying off as many people as possible, people mm. who'd been loyal workers. And obviously that's a part of it, restructuring, but I didn't think that there was anything. It was just he was just more brutal than other people around him and also taking home a salary of 25 million euros a year. So there was that. And also I just, so that that from the outset, I thought he was a pretty unlikable guy to begin with. Um and second, you know, whether or not he committed fraud, to me, it was like, it wouldn't have changed anything I already thought about him if I found out he committed fraud. Do you know what I mean? Like, there right. would, wouldn't have been any kind you of... You found him twist. unlikable from the get-go. Well, he just seemed like somebody... Consistent just, with his character. It just seemed like it would, that, that would be a natural extension of his brutalist approach to business and his okay. brutalist self-interest. So the stuff I did find interesting here was the stuff about um, French and Japanese business culture. Yeah. So that, that I thought was very interesting and in the mm. way in which... So we do background to that. This, yeah, this so series, yeah, fill that in. Yeah. The series details how um, uh, Renault purchased a, a stake in the, um, the, the struggling um, Japanese automaker Nissan. Mm. And it wasn't quite a merger, but it was a, it was a quasi-merger. And as a result, um, Carlos Ghosn became the CEO of of Nissan and helped restructure it back to profitability and then assumed the role of CEO of both of the companies simultaneously, mm. which this uh, documentary suggests was an overreach and was an extension of his inflated sense of uh, self-worth and hubris. But also there's a, there's a real sense that Nissan and the car industry generally are a real rallying point for post-war Japan. And yeah. the sense that, you know, like this importance of Japan are feeling like they're still... Um, industrial trailblazers when it comes yeah. to car manufacture. Yeah. And so a big thing about it is the the kind of insistence that this is not actually a merger between Nissan and Renault, but an alliance. Yes. And so you, it's almost like you see Japanese anxieties about sovereignty, you know, which were to some extent, you know, you know or Japanese aspirations to sovereignty, you know, on the world stage, which was to some extent quashed by World War II, mm. um, replaying themselves at the level mm. of, like almost like post-industrial capitalism and there's yeah. there's this real tension French ones too French as well yes there's this real tension where you have this guy who on the one hand restores this sense of national profit and pride but then also does so through as you said being a, being a member of a kind of globalised business community who comes in and takes very brutal measures mm. so mm. Just, all that stuff I thought was interesting I mean it's interesting 
to see the way in Japan he becomes a kind of cult hero. Yes. So women approach him on the street and ask him out. And some Japanese, maybe the Japanese government, identifies him as like the business father of the year. Yeah. Even though apparently at that time he had very little to do with his children. Yeah. So I thought it was an interesting study in the way in which a kind of business figure can take on the same, I guess, kind of cultural capital as a politician yes. or even a, dic- even a dictator. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a suggestion yeah. here that if if this series is, is foreshadowing that he did commit fraud, mm. it's suggesting that this was... This was an extension of, of his hubris and the fact that I the agree. checks and balances that were that were you know uh, customary in these more conservative business cultures were removed, mm. and he became like symbolically his uh, party said in Versailles uh, a sovereign yep. unto himself. Exactly. Um, so I think that I think you know even if you find him unlikable, mm. I think the trajectory of him from a more modest family man to this this kind of you know narcissistic hubristic monster mm. is an interesting you know yeah i mean up tragic to, tragic uh, art up up to a, up to a point but i kind of i also felt like the way it framed it was not quite like that but the question of how did this visionary businessman become a possible criminal and i just I, I just thought his vision consisted in like just brutally slashing jobs <laughs> and taking home like you yeah. know six you know nine figure salaries so like yeah. i'm not just, i just i found that that kind of vision inverted commas so uninteresting um, it's almost like it's almost like his vision consisted in being having the courage, I guess, to be less imaginative than people who came before him. Like it seemed like in both Japan and France, you know, the CEOs had tried to come up with imaginative ways of restructuring the company while retaining jobs, mm. whereas he was kind of innovatively unimaginative and he just got rid of as many jobs as possible. Yeah, and of course that's part of the business cycle, but it just seemed like he did it with such a rampant insatiable kind of appetite well mm. you know while also taking home like 25 million mm. a year i just yeah I he's just, no doubt he's a very unlikable guy but, by the end of this but, but i guess what i'm saying is to me like that i i didn't feel that dramatic thrust because i just felt like from the outset as a businessman that was kind of his mentality that mm. kind of restructuring through downsizing so i just by the end i was like well so you think that is as immoral as well, as fraud well it, it, it's, not, it's not a huge step Mm. You know, like in both cases, you're treating people in the most... Mm. Um, well, it's a psychopathic behaviour. It's a psychopathic so behaviour. You can and, understand. And I guess that's something I would have been more interested in if there's something about the sociopathy. Mm. Like, my sense was that he, he slashed many more jobs than he needed to, was the mm. sense I got from mm. this. So if there's something about the sociopathy of that, and like maybe I'm being sentimental about it, I'm just saying that I didn't, I didn't feel there was any... I mean, so often the great... Great true tr- true crime texts are about a transformation in perception, right? Mm. So, like The Stranger Beside Me is a classic example of that, and something like, say, the um, the Bernie Madoff. Like, I've, yeah. seen, I've seen various versions of that. So there's like a whole season of damages. It's about him. There's The Wizard of Lies. The um, the Not Barry the Barry Levinson one. Like, yeah. there's a few different, and that I think is genuinely fascinating because this is somebody who was, you know, who was seen by his family and his friends as being a supremely ethical businessman in, in you know insofar as what, whatever that means at the time he did he was seen as a kind of philanthropist mm. and so to go from that to the ponzi scheme i think is, is a radical mm. shift in perception at the same time in both of those cases it's so clear that the perpetrator is guilty mm. whereas here there's there's a real there's a real um implication this could have been a frame-up but I, I i didn't find that a meaningful difference partly because if it was a frame-up they explain this it's because i mean one of the interesting things about japanese business culture right as they present it is that layoffs are inimical mm. to the you know to the national ethos of. yeah it's unheard yeah. of because 
there is a real sense of the industry being this, like the rallying point for the nation, for nationhood, for national pride. And so if there was a conspiracy against him, it was presumably because people were tired of the downsizing. Yeah. And so, you know, whether that happened or I not... I think there was also a suggestion that, you know, to, to sort of stymie any merger mm. between them and that loss of that yeah. Nissan as it a It just felt like anything company. that was done to him was no less ruthless than something he might have done. So... Yeah. It's, the, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying you have to like the protagonist. I just, for me, there wasn't a great deal of dramatic tension here. Okay. Which, um, yeah. I think all of this is leading up to obviously his his remarkable Houdini act yeah. <laughs> in escaping Japan That's despite being under uh, extraordinary uh, surveillance. So I think this is this is uh, it's clearly a, a setup episode. The pilot establishes the yeah. character, um, why then why he might have been guilty of these crimes, why it also might have been a frame up, and the, the next uh, couple of episodes presumably deal with the the immediate, um, you know, prelude and aftermath and, of this. And there's an important, an important caveat. Like, it is very much a prelude pilot. And I agree, the logistics of him escaping Japan, mm. really interesting. Mm. At the same time, with that amount of money, I mean, I'm sure, you know, like, <laughs> you've got, you got resources at your disposal. Um <laughs> Yeah, look, I thought I thought it was. So you're not on team going. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. I thought it was interesting up to a point. I just didn't really buy the dichotomy between who he was putatively before and after this act of fraud. So I, I yeah, I found him uninteresting. I found him okay. fundamentally uninteresting. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely open to it. Like I can see that it could get more fascinating as it goes on. Okay. But I think this is a great. Great story. Um, it's pretty well told. I don't think it's an incredible documentary. No, it's functional. Like it's not innovative. No. I mean, a lot of it's talking heads. Mm. Um, but I think the story is so interesting that there's there's enough there. No matter how, what you think of, of Gone, mm. the story is mm. is propulsive enough to, to carry you through the four the four parts of this yeah. limited series. I think my kind of fun knows here that I just I just didn't I didn't see there being that much of a difference between the brutality of what he had done and the brutality of what he supposedly had done mm. to feel a huge amount of tension. But yeah, I can definitely say that it could get better. Okay. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a tentative in on this. I'm a probable out, but if I hear it's amazing, I'll watch more. Okay, onto our archive corner yeah. in a series that is precious to my heart, and mm. I'm, I'm hoping you loved it too. It's Cracker. So this was created by Jimmy McGovern for Granada Television. It came out in 1993. There were three series and then a couple of specials afterwards. Mm. And the, it's a, the, the, at its heart, it was a crime crime procedural. Um, it was about a, a police force, um, a couple of big actors in there, um, uh, Geraldine Somerville, uh, Christopher Eccleston, and... Uh, Robbie Coltrane plays Dr. Edward Fitzgerald. Edward, isn't it? Yep. Um, Edward Fitzgerald Fitz is how he's called, who is a forensic psychiatrist who's mm. called in as a consultant for time to time. So cracker is a is a, a slang, uh, slang term. term for a psychologist. So I think this is probably the quintessential Robbie Coltrane performance for me. Mm. Probably the quintessential Manchester television series as mm. well. Like the, the Manchester backdrop becomes ever more mm. pre gentrification. Pre gentrification, <laughs> exactly the north. Um and the series had a kind of an, an interesting format in that each season only had a couple of epi- a couple of narratives which were spread out over several episodes. So you'd have narratives that lasted two episodes, three episodes, four episodes. The first narrative is called The Mad Woman in the Attic, and we, what the pilot is part one of that, mm. uh, directed by Michael Winterbottom. And from my memories, this was the most straightforward of the narratives, and some some ways the least engaging, mm. um, in that it's just it's a fairly straightforward crime that's just basically there to introduce the characters and their different um, dispositions. Um, 
and above all to introduce us to the character of Fitz, who mm. is, you know, just an extraordinary character. So, you know, he's in his private life, he's a gambling addict and he's a mm. chronic smoker and drinker. And actually we see his wife, played by Barbara Flynn, um, move out with their one of their children um, while in, in this first pilot, when she discovers that he's kind of taking a second mortgage on the house to satisfy his gambling addiction. Yeah, there's a great, there's a great quote in an episode, Brotherly Love, from, from, uh, from Fitz. I drink too much, I smoke too much, I gamble too much, I am too much. Yeah, exactly. So it's just, it's a kind of a larger-than-life kind of personality. Mm. Um, and it feels like this is... When he walks in, it becomes a crowded room. It becomes a crowded room, exactly. And it just feels like, yeah, I mean, various ways, it's quintessential, probably Coltrane. But um, so that, there's that at the heart. But it also happens to be like all those things that give him a kind of appetite for life are also part... He brings the same energy to bear in his forensic psychiatry. Mm. I guess this is a time, right, in the early 90s, where we're starting to see like forensic psychiatry become more of a thing yeah. in television shows. This is one of the kind of prototypical examples of it. It's, I think it's extraordinary how well it's aged. And at, at the core, of, and we, we see it um, played out in the core narrative here, which is a woman is found murdered on a train. Um, there's, you know, there's no clear sense of who did it. Then a man is found unconscious by the train line, um, covered in blood. So what it looks like the murderer killed her opportunistically and jumped off the train and he now claims total amnesia. So it's a very simple, very pure, I guess, psychiatric premise. Is he lying or not? Is there real amnesia? And after cycling through a number of different interrogation strategies, the police finally call in Fitz. Mm. And the episode ends with the interrogation with Fitz mm. and with Fitz appealing for him to tell him the truth and just cuts to black. Yeah, every episode every episode in this... Um, it's a real cliffhanger. Absolutely, yeah. So, And that's something I remember about the series, like just highly cinematic endings. In terms of the tone, I'd say like this reminds me a lot of what you probably call like the British wave of neo-noir in the 80s and early 90s. So films like Mona Lisa by Neil Jordan, especially Mike Figgis' Stormy Monday, if you've ever seen I that. I haven't seen that. It's, like a, it's a neo-noir set in Newcastle, so a similar oh. kind of vibe. And it kind of, you know... A very jazzy kind of soundtrack and echoes of Americana. Um, you know, there's, there's American film posters all over Fitz's house, but inflected through that northern sensibility. It's interesting, mm. something I found out recently, I, when I was watching Bad Sisters, actually, I think Carl told me that apparently there's, there's always been in the 20th century, the second half of the 20th century, a massive identification with American culture in Ireland. So mm, because yeah. Ireland's, it's almost like, you know, Ireland culturally sees itself, sees America as achieving what it was unable to do mm. in terms of, you know, gaining independence. There's always been a strong identification between Irish and American subcultures. You feel a similar thing here in the North. Like mm. the North is not, it's still part of England, but it's, it's marginal enough and in some ways alienated enough that those American cues are as much a point of reference as British cues. Mm. So there's a lot of Americana that filters through here at a kind of second or third remove. Mm. The aesthetic is very interesting as well. Yep. And um, Michael Winterbottom shooting this, it mm. feels like a handheld aesthetic. Yes. The way I describe the the look of this is bleary-eyed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's like you're rubbing your eyes. It's mm. it's it's sort of overexposed. It's scenes that are too dark. There's mm. other scenes where, it, despite the fact it's pretty gloomy mm. setting, it's, it's really... It's bright white mm. um it's really taking you inside the uh the mind and the the perspective of of fits as like mm. a, as a focalizer where you know everything's a series of you know of, of hangovers and intensities and mm. um someone who's who's obviously very brilliant but is also is also you know in the thrall of his of his addictions and i feel like i you know like 
Yes, and I feel like you know, um, at the time I was watching it, you know, since then I've developed a more healthy diet. But I, you know, I, in some ways, had a similar relation to food, right? Like I had a lot of <laughs> junk food, I had a lot of unhealthy food. Um, it's something I really kind of understood. Just that, you know, that habitual. And it's like binging, right? Yeah, like yeah, I was somebody yeah. used to be a bit of a binge eater myself back in the day. I kind of understood that binging mentality and it's a really big part of the show. And yeah. you know, on that note, like as somebody myself who's a, a little bit of a larger person, um, I think this is the show where Robbie Coltrane really embraces being fat. Like I mean that in a completely kind of unjudgmental way. I mean, his, his girth, his size is a big part of any role it's he's in. Body positivity. And here he... He embraces that, I think. I mean, he's in Tutti Fruity, an early series, you know, well, of course, it's a part of Hagrid. But here, there's a way that he commands space. Yeah. And there's lots of shots of him walking from behind. There's lots of shots of him side on. Yeah. Like, it is... He's a big man. Yeah, he's, he, tall. he's, he's a, a huge. Presence. He's a huge yeah. man. So yeah. there's just something about what you're saying about that bleary-eyed aesthetic. Like, there's a sense that fits. He's always a little bit too large for the space he's in, both yeah. psychologically and physically. And... Yeah, like as there's a like, great scene when he's in, during the interrogation, mm. where the, um, the 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 person being interrogated says, "You're the one that needs a psychologist." Yes, exactly. <laughs> and look, when I say the thing about my own video, like, there's no particular issue there. It's just you know, uni, you haven't got a lot of structure. You know, you get into these habits. Yeah, I remember watching it in the midst of those habits. I'm probably having more chocolate than I should, having more pizza. I just, I kind of, un, you know, you, it's great to see a character on the big screen. He's yeah. not like you know, just eating yeah. sushi hasn't, and salad. Yeah, hasn't got his life together, but it's not like he's down the other end of the completely out of control spectrum is is where a lot of people are which is you know there's semi some, out of control or just not understanding their own habitual activities or it's like it's like the premise of the show that everybody has a, do you know what I mean everybody has those um you know those things that they you know are compelled by mm. you know whether it's food or whether it's smoking or whatever mm. um but yeah i just think there's such an incredible presence to him like a it's all it's all a roundabout way of saying i think there's such an incredible physical presence to him yeah um and a way he kind of carries himself he in shows space. very physical very tactile but, yes and i think it's funny i remember when i first watched it in terms of what you've said about that tactility and the handheld approach i mean i i remember just being completely immersed in it mm. like it felt so immediate and so mm. visceral and especially when the stakes get higher and you know more continuous narratives start to emerge and you know, other characters become as valuable to you as fits. Like, it, it's very, very affecting. So something that's interesting about this pilot is the characters we see, like the Christopher Eccleston, the Geraldine Somerville, the Barbara Flynn characters, they, these become massive figures later on. So, but it, at the moment, it's just a very economical focus on Fitz and his world. He's often in motion. Yes. Have you noticed that? Like, he's often, he's often in transitory spaces. He starts in a bedding area. The crime takes place on a train. Like, he's often... Even at home, he's often like moving manically from one room to another. Yeah, like he's, searching for he's money. He's kind of restless. Very energy, restless. He? Yeah, Despite yeah. The fact, he's a big man. Yeah, yeah. Like he's always doing things with his mouth. He's always compulsively smoking. Mm. And one of the things you notice most about the show is the amount of smoking going on, especially in interrogation rooms inside and, and that, bedrooms and that lounge links, rooms, restaurants. And that links in so <laughs> he's not a droopy cigarette. Yeah, you know, like either in his hand or out the side of his mouth almost at all times. And that's part, oral fixation. And it's one of the reasons, right, for this bleary-eyed style, right? Yeah. The kind of, this kind of smoke in every room all yeah. the time. Yeah, what, what, I feel like I've talked a lot about it as someone who loves the show. What were your impressions of it? Yeah, I, I think, firstly, um, unlike the crowded... This is a nice counterpoint to the crowded room. Mm. That has like a kind of faux uh, sheen grittiness. This is genuinely gritty. This mm. is genuinely um, evocative of that, of a, of a sort of depressed environment post-industrial environment um, i like the so, way it doesn't resort to like really overt 
you know, poverty spectacle. No, no, no. But this, but you feel that you feel Manchester's. Yeah, it's down at its luck. It's yeah. down at heel as is Fitz. Mm. Uh, you know, recovering from a divorce, still mm. you know ensconced in all these addictions, um, and you, you get a sense as well that there's the police force as well is is also um, prone to that. Like there's a sense of entropy mm. in the society, which is also percolates through to the police force. Mm. Like, the police feel here feel very angry, very mm. violent, very manic, mm. um, almost unprofessional, mm. and there's a real visceral anger to their reaction to this crime. Mm. And I think that's manifested in particular in the way that they try to elicit a confession here. Mm. And it does remind me of, a, of, a, of an earlier time. It's a very evocative of an earlier time when when police would extort confessions mm. um, out of people through you know, various types of indoctrination, mm. manipulation, in particular something called verbaling, mm. where police officers would, would put things, would posit things, mm. and then and then sort of rely on gratuitous concurrence to to elicit a confession. Mm. There's a lot of that mm. here, and it, it does, um, I guess, evoke to me the sense that that trying to you know. Um, coerce a confession mm. is partly um, extorting extorting this narrative from the perpetrator and all crime fiction is obviously about you know the missing narrative mm. um, you know the, the confession and the the you know the actual narrative of the crime itself and and this verbaling is is a way of sort of positing a narrative that's either confirmed or rejected mm. um, and in particular I think what's what's great about the interchange between Fitz and the the perpetrator here is despite the fact he's a psychologist, he also resorts to, to yes. verbaling, and the way yeah, yeah. he 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 sort of verbals him is is his psych- psychologically mm. um, suggesting, oh, this is your motive, mm. you know, this is this is uh, you know hypothesis A, hypothesis B, mm. hypothesis C, and posits to him, and and you know he resort, you know, at one point he's resorts to identifying with him, another point he's sort of he's sort of trying to shame him and the third point he resorts to kind of plead pleading and, and wheedling mm. um so probably the, worth saying too that the victim fits knows like she was so you have these incredible scenes where he talks to the killer and says you know i know i know why you did it you know everyone wants to do stuff like this mm. but on the other hand we know that he was friends with the victim so we know that this is a ruse but it's incredible the different persona he goes yeah. through yeah. to kind of to try and exactly and you get that sense that he's a compulsive personality yes so he understands compulsive behavior yes. on the part yep. of criminals um but he's he's also an addicted personality mm. and you get a sense that he's addicted to eliciting this narrative mm. so cracker himself and the show itself is is compulsive there's mm. a compulsive desire to find out mm. this narrative and you get you get that sense of this there's an addiction to narrative and that's, that's a great way to put it and we've we've put we've talked about how he's a smoker and he's a drinker but his main compulsion is gambling right mm. and that's in a way, that's kind of what gambling is, right? It's this desire to kind of to predict a narrative mm. and then to see it come to fruition, mm. which is what he does. And that kind of, I think, brings me to just the one caveat I will, or one qualification I'll make about this pilot because it is just setting the pieces in place and it is a very distilled version. The one thing you don't see here, I think, as much is the narrative ingenuity of the show. Mm. But what you say is very prescient of the way in which the show becomes... A kind of exercise in narrative. Yeah, I was. Um, gonna, I was actually going to say, you know, yeah. when you think about crime fiction, mm. there's not a lot you can say that's new here. There's mm. not a lot. There's not much innovative. So the way you can distinguish yourself is either characterization, mm. uh, atmosphere, mm. and plotting. Mm. And I was going to say this characterization. This knocks it out of the park. Atmosphere, the atmosphere as well, but plotting, especially the crime here, is a little bit yep. generic. And this is something I remember. So I think, and I think this is actually the only story in. 
the entire series that only lasts two episodes, mm. most are three or four. So you see the stories evolve. And I remember even it when I was on a kind of amnesia trope, yep, which is exactly a bit cliche, but it also does interrogate that cliche. Yep. So. And one thing I would say is that this episode also has quite an unsettling ending. So the oh. way in which it ends is quite unsettling. Okay. So the conclusion I remember being... So in, in many ways, narratively, this is probably the most generic episode in all of Cracker. Mm. But it's, it's just so it can immerse us in everything that's original, the level of characterization and atmosphere. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a hard in for this, the point where I just feel like watching the whole thing all over again. Um, <laughs> yeah. I love Robbie Coltrane. It's one of the things when, when, when you... I, I'd always liked him before I watched it because I'd seen him as a kid growing up in various bit parts and in Tutti Frutti. But when you find that work in which an actor achieves their kind of apotheosis, this is that. Oh, so yeah. I he's, think it's... He's an incredible protagonist. Yeah. He, he's so interesting. He contains multitudes. He contains multitudes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. His face uh, is a narrative. He is the crowded room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, look, this is, this is great. It's yeah. a great recommendation. Yeah. And um, I'm very, very intrigued to I feel watch like more a, of this. at some point we should almost watch it together. I feel there, like There's not that much of it. That's where this is going to head. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, look, what, what's your pilot for next for next time? So, the pilot for next time is I've heard a lot about this show. Yep. Um, I've had it recommended to me many times independently. I've never seen it myself. Mm. Perhaps you've seen a little bit of it. Um, but it also, also comes with enormous critical acclaim. Mm. And that is BoJack Horseman. Right, so I've seen quite a bit of this because okay. Carl's a big fan. So okay. yeah, okay. interesting. I have I have opinions on it. Okay, I have some opinions on it. Um, and we haven't done an animated show for a while either. We have so that's we haven't. Yeah, I've yeah. There's also a spin-off show, Tuka and Birdie, that we watch quite a lot of as well. So um, interesting. Okay, I'll Carl will be interested to hear that one next week. I'm looking week. forward to discourse on BoJack Horseman. BoJack Horseman. Okay, well, um, and remember there's that great shout out to BoJack Horseman in Succession. I think that season three episode no season it's four succession seasons right there's yes yeah yeah season three episode one remember when kendall sequesters himself in the apartment and wants to kind of launch a campaign against logan and he's kind of really in that manic phase and he's like oh yeah i've got to get the bojack guys in to get some papers oh, yeah, to it so yeah. like it's, it's one of the all-time great shout outs in succession <laughs> that sounds great and after a couple of weeks we've had shows that are like clocking in at an hour or more yeah it'd be kind of good and to be honest it's one of those shows too that like although i've watched a lot of it in an ambient way with kyle i've actually never watched a pilot and i have a clear sense of how the story all begins so okay. yeah it's a great suggestion great cool i'm billy i'm drew that was pilot club <laughs>